one thing you hear in sales, I don't know, that I was taught is that it's a numbers game. And you know, there's a lot of debate on what exactly you know people mean by that. But one of the things I learned from Ian, Jamal, and Brandon is that they don't look at sales as a numbers game at all. They over-invest in the quality side of the math equation. And all three of them have used that approach to earn over seven figures in a single year. And that's what we're going to unpack in this three-part series. And one of the things you're going to hear about is just clever ways that these guys have landed meetings. But before we get to that, my name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting. I'm on a mission to help reps and sales teams turn complete strangers into paying customers. I believe that we can have fun and kick ass in sales. We can make more money and not be ashamed to talk about it or to be money motivated. And I really believe that sales is a lifestyle. And today, again, we're talking to Jamal, Ian, Brandon. This is part of a three-part series I did with these guys uh, called Earning Seven Figures. And this episode is going to be focused on landing the meeting. We talk about a bunch of different things around how they get warm introductions, how they differentiate themselves, how they've used direct mail to land meetings, how they choreograph intros, how they work with gatekeepers, or as I like to call them, assistants. So this is going to be action-packed. Before we get to that, make sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows so that you get notified next time an episode comes out. Without further ado, let's get to it. If this is your first event that you've attended, um, we're talking about earning seven figures. So each of these three fellas here, um, I'll give a quick intro to if you're seeing any of them for the first time. But Jamal, uh, he's been a career enterprise seller for over 20 years. And first big deal, it sounds like Jamal, you closed was $50 million at, at uh, Oracle about 10 years ago now. Hopefully that doesn't make you feel old. <laughs> but he runs, a, he runs a business called Mega Deal Secrets, where he helps reps you know, land these mega deals. Uh, Brandon, he sold over $50 million in SaaS sales. I love that you put your stats in your bio too, Brandon. $27.3 million in ARR, 78% closing ratio, like all that stuff's really good. You run a business now called Be Focused, Live Great. You help reps as well. And last but not least, Ian spent close to nine years at Salesforce where he was a number one rep and hit almost 400% of quota two years in a row. And now you just launched... I think your business last week full, fully, right? So congrats on that. And uh, he helps AEs um, close big deals as well. So super excited to have you three. We're going to talk about topic number two today. So we talked last week about crossing the chasm, what it takes to get from six to seven figures. This week in this session, we're going to talk about breaking through. So the big thing that we're going to focus on today is more like how to break into the account, how to get the meeting, that sort of thing. So Brandon, I wanted to kick it off to you to actually get started here. Your approach has been really big around this process you call diamond account planning. And I thought that would be kind of a good place to start. How do you sort of think about account planning and deciding what accounts to go after? And let's start with that piece. Yeah, so you mentioned some of the stats. So the the 27 million in ARR that I, I generated it was over a three-year period. So the majority of my wealth was built in a three, four-year period when I was at a company called Live Person, conversational AI leader. And 
context there is we dealt in the customer experience space, the CX space. And I was a net new logo hunter. So I didn't have the anchor of an MSA to get in the door, at least in my first few years there. So I was literally knocking on doors and we didn't even have a, an SDR team when I first started. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to systemize, okay, if I am trying to break into these really large strategic accounts, we were handed 50 strategic accounts in verticals that live person had deemed, hey, here's where we can be successful. And I wanted to be super intentional with, with my own approach and take ownership as if I were CEO of my account list. So I was running my business within a larger business. And so what I took was this concept of Ikigai, this Japanese concept of Ikigai, which roughly means reason for being. And it's you know four different criteria that, that you layer on, what am I good at? What do I love? What can I make money? What does the world need? And I wanted to do that with my own account list because I knew that, hey, with limited time, limited energy, limited attention, uh, I needed to be hyper-focused and to meet quota in a year, net new logos, I needed to uh, be super strategic and build a system around that. So what I did is I took five criteria and I created these rings and uh, you know, for me, I wanted to identify, hey, what was interesting? What are interesting accounts on this list? What's an industry first for the, the company um, or a big account in an industry that I knew live person was trying to break into, like travel? Um, where did I have domain expertise? Um, what could move fast? So thinking, hmm, maybe not healthcare, maybe not financial services, because just knowing those industries, they typically move slower. And then what could be big out of the gates? So typical land and expand. I wanted to challenge that model to say, well, if I'm going to land this, I want to I land it big um, before it even you know, could expand from there. So that was my criteria. And, and I created this Venn diagram. And in the middle of that was a diamond. And so I layered on my account list and I plotted it on this Venn diagram. And the closer it was to the diamond or inside that diamond, that's what I focused on. And then eventually when we did start hiring SDRs, that's how I worked with them to be hyper-strategic in the customer experience space. Hey, how do we start to find insights around this brand that we know we can fix um, you know, challenges around. So that was a, a huge wake up moment for me to sort of apply this filter and allow me to be super responsible and strategic with my key, my time, energy, and attention. Got it. Ian, it looked like you were going to add something. It, it's similar. I, I, I had a system of segmenting accounts. I'm just thinking about the Pareto principle, 80-20 rule. It says 20% of our actions result in 80% of our our um, results. And it's kind of the same way for account planning too. It really is like in the enterprise, if I think about Brandon and Jamal and all the top performers at Salesforce that I work with, they were getting most of their business from, from a few accounts. And so um, it, it's not about the, the quantity as much in a transactional and mid-market type of motion. It's really in, in, in the enterprise space, it's about the quality. So 
picking the very few accounts, picking the horses that you're going to bet on that we know are a great fit. Those are what I call the A accounts. So I would always segment my accounts into A, B, and C. And really the A was only like two to five accounts, you know, and you're going all in with those accounts. You're bringing in, um, you know, your team, you're mapping out. These are massive accounts. So there's multiple, you know, regions, there's multiple departments, there's subsidiaries, there's sister companies. So, you know, when you go all in with some of these um, you don't need a lot of deals. You you need you know very few, but very large deals, and you're spending all your time with with you know fewer accounts, and that's a good thing in the enterprise space. That's that's kind of what I was nodding my head about. And I forgot to mention this for everyone here in attendance. Ask questions if you got them. So either in the chat, in the Q and A, I can kind of filter those out a little bit. But please engage, ask questions. We want to get as much of your questions answered as possible. Jamal, for you. Knowing what you know now, because you've been doing this, all of you guys have been doing this for such a long time. Is there any advice that you would give yourself as a first-time enterprise seller, knowing what you know now about account selection and maybe things to avoid or times where you ran into situations where, oh man, I wasted a bunch of time going after something that I I could have maybe anticipated? What what advice would you give yourself? I mean, so most of the good advice has been said. So I'm I don't want to re- repeat too much, but the just find find those big filters. So if I was going to advise, you know, the the rookie Jamal, um, it wouldn't be exactly what I do now. So what I mean by that is, uh, at the end of my IC career, the first thing that I would do is okay, which accounts in my patch could could physically or 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 uh, realistically support a mega deal. So if I was selling something that was based on number of seats of a certain user type, do they even have that many people? Is it even, is it, is it even feasible to, to do something of size here? That's kind of my first one. The other ones that the other guys have mentioned are absolutely all there too. Um, I guess the piece of advice that I'd give um, the, 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 the rookie Jamal is just be strategic and have a reason. And sometimes you, you're not going to find a great reason until you start to poke around. And I know we're going to get into how to get in and other things like that. And maybe that's a segue there, but a big chunk of the research, you, you got to start from a gut level, a reality check of could it, if your goal is to do something large, can it even support it? And then you start to go into the who and, and, and crafting the story, et cetera. And I think maybe that's the next chapter or two of today's conversation. Yeah. So what I'm hearing so far is everyone here has a very rigorous selection process and a segmentation process. And what I got from you, Jamal, just now is that I know it seems kind of obvious, but I don't think a lot of people do this where you look at if you sell something that's a perceived kind of thing in the case of Salesforce, let's say get on LinkedIn sales navigator and look at what's the size of their sales team, you know, see if the opportunity is actually there. I'm just looking at some of the questions that people are asking. So how do you guys think about balancing going after those two, three big accounts, but also needing to close deals, you know, in the meantime of something that might take a year or longer, you know, to close, how do you guys balance out these a, you know, priorities, these tier ones, with sort of the rest of the stuff to make sure that you're not putting all your eggs in a basket where, you know, it could, it could turn out really ugly if you don't close it. Go ahead, Jamal. Can I start with that one? So um, it's, it's a, it's an analogy that we're, we may be all familiar with. 
I think of any any of our territory, we could think of it as that pie chart of an investment portfolio. And we're going to have some risky stuff and some not risky stuff. And the, the less risky investment is the run rate business that we know that we can get. It's transactional. It's small. Unfortunately, it's just... <laughs> are almost as you know labor intensive as large deals but we're we're fairly confident that we can get those smaller deals if we work our tails off but there's going to be some percentage in our investment portfolio that's going to be riskier high risk high high reward stuff and that percentage is what we can go for a smaller number of higher payoff deals and that's a honestly that's a conversation with you and your manager you know, because on the extreme, you don't want to go for one massive deal because that's do or die. That's binary, win big or lose and get a goose egg. On the other hand, you don't want to do just small deals or you work yourself to death and maybe make your number. So you you need to come to an understanding, especially with your manager who's going to support. Yeah, OK, this much of your time, you can go cook a big deal or two. But the rest, we still need to be good soldiers and bring in the run rate. So senior management doesn't fly off the handle. How do you guys think about the balance of time? If there was a ratio, I know it's not going to be down to a perfect you know, science, but how do you think about the balance of time between spending on these really large deals versus these run rate ones, a percentage or a, you know, balance? How do you, how do you guys think about that? For me, I, I don't know if there's a hard percentage. I think Jamal hit it there is we've got to think of ourselves like we're managing a portfolio. So going back to whether it's you're managing your account list like a CEO or you're thinking of yourself like a venture capitalist or you're managing um, a high-end portfolio, you've got to be strategic and you've got to know yourself. So doing that deep work, doing that intentional work of, okay, where do I have industry and domain expertise so that I can sit across from the table of, a, of, of an executive or pull in a team of executives who can be equal to, to those executives? Do I have those levers to pull? So like a good, uh, you know, if you're, you're, you're like a Kathy Wood managing art investments, you're understanding what your strategic assets are, what your strengths are, where your gaps are, and you go fill that those gaps with with people on your team who can help level your, the, the buying experience up. So um, I think Stephen asked, you know, one of one of the questions I think that is apropos to to this part is how do you land those those large deals? Um, and I always looked at it like. I felt confident that because I was backed and I was working on deals where I could talk the industry language, I could talk their terminology, um, I could come with confidence that we look big. Um, and one of the most helpful things of being able to look and start big out of the gates is having a maturity model. And that was something I benefited from at my organization, Life Person. Because we knew how to take a brand, whether that was an airline, whether that was a bank, whether that was a retailer, to go from point A to point Z or point D, more appropriately, we could take them across these phases. So here's stepping stone one. You don't necessarily need to spend $10 million out of the gate over time, but you might be spending $30, $40 million over 
a three-year period, a five-year period. So a starting point might be instead of $250,000 that gets you into the land of run rate selling that Jamal was talking about, where it's going to be hyper-competitive, it locks you into a box, it locks you into the land of RFPs, it locks you into the land of jargon and uh, uh, talking around features and a race to the bottom on cost. It keeps you locked in at the director level. Instead, when you can think big and show a brand backed with the research, backed with the team, hey, here's how we, we think big and we start small. And then we can expand from there in year two, in year three, and here are expected outcomes. And that's going to take a dialogue between you and their organization. And it's going to also take some internal selling of how do you rally folks within your organization to be excited to jump on board and get this pursuit with you? Because if you can bring them along, your closing ratios are going to increase significantly. You're going into these accounts and with a really big vision. This is how you attract the executive level conversations, it sounds like. I love that think big, start small. It's really interesting as a way to kind of differentiate yourself. I want to keep moving you guys just for time here to kind of the next part. Ian, you talk a lot about finding a change agent or mobilizer. I know that can happen at every kind of phase, including once you've already kind of broken in. But how do you think about selecting the first, you know, two, three, four people that you're going to reach out to at an account? How do you think about finding some of those people that will be a change agent, someone that will kind of either sponsor or champion you and, you know, kind of get the process moving? It, it really isn't two, three or four people in these accounts. I had two accounts that I, that I managed at Salesforce. It was 20, 30 or 40 people. And that's how many conversations people say, how do you manage two accounts? Well, I'd have 10 to 20 yeah. meetings per week with different folks. Yeah. It, it's not so much. This is the hardest part about new logo hunting and large enterprises, just finding the right person who's going to take ownership of a strategic initiative, who's going to bring in other stakeholders, who's going to know the process that they have to go through internally. So I think Fundamentally, number one is, is you have to map out multiple levels within an organization. So I say A, B, and C accounts, but within those accounts, Salesforce had 200 products. I had a team of 20 sellers on my team as an account director. And so my goal was to speak with the C-suite or the senior vice presidents or executives in the account. So I identified about 50 people in each account, and it was across 10 departments. IT, it would be three levels. So it would be the CIO, the VP of applications, the SVP of, you know, sometimes um, platform or cloud cloud applications. So it was usually three people and then sometimes a senior director. Because again, these, these accounts have 20,000 or so employees. Then it was go to sales. So same thing, CRO, SVP or EVP of sales, head of sales operations. Same thing with service because we had so many products, MuleSoft, Slack, Tableau, Sales Cloud, Service Cloud, you name it. So my job was, was really about working and speaking with executives. And then I had my team across that were going to the different departments and levels. And so you really want to be high, wide, and deep in the account. Now, at the executive level, if you 
are talking to someone and they're talking about transformation. They're talking about, you know, competitive threats. They're talking about ambitious revenue goals. And they're talking about challenges. Typically a change agent is very open about their challenges. They're very open about their goals and they're very, they're working with urgency. We need to do this now. This is our top priority for this year. Here's what we're focused on. You know, let's talk about, you know, how we can work together and really tackle these things. So um, that that takes a lot of conversations to get to get um, identify who the change agents are. But once you know, you know because they're vocal and they're also bringing you into all the other executives and stakeholders that they need to get on board with you know with with the project or with the initiative. So my my main point is you need to map out all of the different people at multiple levels that could be potential buyers. Have a lot of conversations, and then when you have those conversations, you know really assess. Um, do they want to change? Are they vocal about the problem? Do they have the power, right? And really, um, you know that through the, the actions and the next steps that they take to bring you and to connect you with other people in the organization. That's kind of how you know you're dealing with the change agent. I love the high, wide, and deep, you know, kind of kind of thinking there. Jamal, when you think about, you know, kind of the who part, again, uh, where do you decide to start? Do you start at the top and then work your way down? Do you work up? That's questions that people are asking. And before you get to that, some people are asking about how does this apply to me if I sell SMB or mid-market? I'm assuming you guys correct me if I'm wrong, that you kind of scale this process down. It might not be 50 people and 10 departments. It might be two departments and two or three people in each department, right? So feel free to add any. And to be clear, that's because Salesforce had so many products. That's why, because there were so many different divisions and departments we sold to. That's not for every company where you may sell the one department. Yeah. 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 Can I, can I speak to that before going to your real question? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, maybe a way to make a a, a parallel is that I, I think the lesson that Ian's talking about that we would all share is that the way, like I think that the vast majority of the audience today are at much smaller companies with a few SKUs, one to five, right? Something in that in that region. But the the mindset shift that leads to a different sales play is I make these two these two analogies. We need to move the the, the typical sales play is what I call Batman and Robin where the salesperson is Batman and the pre-sales person is Robin. And with Batman and Robin, you can go out into the territory and do 50K deals all day long <laughs> and do all the run rate you want to do. And we need to change our thinking and our, and our, our motion from Batman and Robin to we need to become the field marshal of our Roman legion, whatever size that legion is, whether it's a massive sales force or you know something a, 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 a late stage startup, and that mentality shift is me and one other person are going to go do everything. To I need to step back and bring the big guns. I need to have artillery. I need to have cavalry. I need to have archers. I need to have a right flank and a west flank and a left flank. I need spies. I need you know supply lines. And now you're talking how to do a big deal. And that can be done at a, at a, in a more micro way. Like I, for a while there at Oracle, I had one account. I was a key account director and, and it was a similar thing to what, what Ian was talking about. And 
that was huge and complex. But I think we can we can conceptualize of moving from you know a, 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 a couple of folks to to true team selling that's going to not just be you and your pre-sales person. It's probably going to include product strategy, might include marketing, will definitely include one or more of your executives. And then you get into the business of instead of being what we've always thought of as being a salesperson, we move into something that's more like project management Mm -hmm. because we have to delegate and manage multiple work streams going on at the same time. I could go on forever, but I don't want to keep us behind. It's a key point though. Yeah. Yeah, You know, all this is, you know, masterful stuff because, you know, all three of us, we speak with folks who aren't inside of organizations, big and small. So, you know, we represented some of the world's largest companies, B2B companies, and we know not everybody is representing those companies. I speak with a lot of product-led brands who have like one product, you know, who have a handful of SKUs, as, as Jamal was saying, or those in the CX space, you're a startup and you're small. I get it. It's, it's, it's challenging. I call it swarm selling. You know, you have tools, you can systemize the approach. Very simple. If you have access to Slack, what about putting out a poll out to everybody? And if you're selling into customer experience, what about, hey, I'm trying to get Starbucks. I'm trying to get this airline. Um, How, what's your experience like there? Get everybody's feedback. The whole organization could help you sell and get, give you insights. And then guess what? You can record those insights and there, there you have data. And what about leading with love with a cool video of how much your company loves that company, right? That you want to do business with. And you could show them that video and say, hey, here's us drinking your coffee. Here's us on your planes. Here's us using your, buying your van's shoes. Whatever it is, we love you. And um, we have some interesting things. We can also solve some of your problems. So you don't have to have, a, a you know, be at a company that has all these resources. If you're, if you have the right system, you're, you're strategic with your thinking and you're smart enough, you can gather insights and make a small team bigger by, you know, being a bit, you know, creative with, with, with your approach. That's great. I love that. Ian, we had a, we had a, uh, my, I managed Activision Blizzard at Salesforce and my predecessor, a guy named Matt Rule, he, he is one of the most consistent, highest performers that Salesforce or software has ever seen, probably one of the best of the best. And he, he went into Activision Blizzard and he was trying to pitch this big design thinking engagement to help them reimagine, you know, the gamer experience. And they just didn't want to do it. They were not having it. So instead of him you know, getting the customer to do this engagement, he found all the top gamers within Salesforce and put them in a room together for a day and got all their insights, looked at the games, what would you want to do better? How, and they came up with this full story of like the, the new gamer experience from start to finish and included esports and included multiple games across, you know, Blizzard and Activision. And it just was 
from the voice of a gamer. So, you know, becoming a customer and then talking to customers within your organization and getting their input. I mean, it's, it's invaluable. And that really is how you develop a point of view that's going to stand out. That's going to catch the attention of executives. And, and I walked into that account when I took it over and he had all this laid out. I'm like, that is amazing. So that that's kind of what the top reps are doing is they're really trying to put themselves in the, the customer shoes and then come in with that perspective before they ever reach out to the client. So it's very um, relevant and, and valuable to the client to hear. I feel like we're on a little bit of a roll, you guys, with this. I know this is a question I prompted you guys with with uh, the videos that we recorded. But Jamal, let me kick a different question over to you. When you think about creative approaches and ways to really get people at, uh, people's attention, what's your experience been? I know you have a lot of stories, you know, around this it, too. What are some of the meaning like in it, like it, like getting somebody's attention who doesn't know me and you know, like like Cole? Yeah, yeah. Um, well. The, the first part is very boring, but very effective. And then if that doesn't work, then I move on to the super creative stuff. So I like to say that I overinvest in warm introductions. So we, wow. we can put that to, to a side because that's not terribly creative, but it's very much about staying what I call, you know, if you're trying to sell above the clouds, you want to stay within the networks that are above the clouds. But we can we can put that one to the side because I think your question is, how do you get creative? Um. <laughs> You know, the, 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 the sky's the limit. You can, you, so if you imagine being in the shoes of uh, an executive, they're already busy as hell. They already have a bajillion people internally wanting their time. And then they've got a bajillion sales reps that also want their time. 99.999% of them are on the super highways of communication, email and phone. And, and that those superhighways are clogged like Highway 5 in L.A. 24 hours a day. So the magic happens when we differentiate ourselves in any way. Now, am I, am I saying that email doesn't work? No. But the percentage of, you know, batting attempts that you need to get the email across, it's you got it. You got to do a lot of emails to get the percentage in most cases, unless you're just this massively amazing email person. So that's all the precursor to say, if you just put a little thought into a creative approach, uh, I mean, and, and there's there's great books on this. A friend of mine, Stu Hynek, he's wrote some great books, How to Get a Meeting with Anyone and Get the Meeting. Get the Meeting is like nothing but examples of creative ways of getting in front of people. So to start really simple, send them a, a, a cupcake on their birthday. Or, you know, up, up at one, there's, there's a story in the first book that there was an SDR that was like doing research on a CIO and found out that he, uh, he was a, how do you call it? A, a falconer, right? Somebody who hunted with falcons, kept falcons. And one of the pieces of gear that they have is a falconing glove. He found a glove and, and sent it to the guy, totally opened the door because it was so, so personalized. One of the guys who's gone through uh, one of the bestsellers that I know is Evan Kelsey. He's at Seismic. He, he, he's a massive mega dealer. He commissioned a piece of artwork like on Etsy or, you know, on, on one of these artistic websites. And it was this beautiful montage with a little uh, very well done logo of the customer. 
and sent this big, huge piece of art to a, se- a senior vice president or managing director at one of the largest SIs in the world. Absolutely broke down the door. And I, I can go on with like, the, 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 I, I've done stuff all, all like these ideas, um, experiences, um, some, some go really crazy. You can spend a ton of money. Uh, you know, I, I've even heard of billboards, right? You just try and you, 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 I've, I've heard of companies doing whole billboards across from the headquarters of, you know, the executives that they're trying to get in front of. So th- those are just a few examples. That billboards are not as expensive as people would think yeah. right now, because no one really wants to pay for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, they don't work. Yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, we're not as creative as we could be in sales because we're locked in the hustle and bustle of trying to manage to numbers instead of managing to impact. Jamal you know, talks about that a lot. We're in the impact game. And to make an impact, you got to be a little creative. But to be creative, you need a system in place. You need actually to operate like an athlete maybe would or an actor or a pianist, you know, an artist. They show up every day and they work on their craft. That takes routine. That takes rituals. That takes a system. And so going back to here's an example of how I landed, pun intended, Delta Airlines. Um, So being in the CX space, doing my diamond account hunting um, and mapping, um, Delta was at the top of my list. So one, the number one reason was I was personally spending time on their planes. Practically every week, I was spending time on their planes. So I knew their terminology. I knew people. I knew what it was like to be on their planes, what type of planes they used the most. I knew specific routes. I knew what it was like to be in their club lounges. And so whether it was on their website, in their app, on their planes, at the airports, in the lounges, post travel, I knew what the experience was because I was their their customer. And so one, I leveraged that. Two, I did a little bit of research and understood timing. Um, There were a couple big macro events happening at the airline that I knew I could strike with, right? Nothing creative about that, but one event was a big blackout um, at the Atlanta airport, their home airport occurred you know, shortly before I reached out to them. Massive impact on their, their systems internally at Delta, right? And so having a talk track around how that could be prevented in the future was very important. The second thing is, they were using a chat vendor that they were suing. <laughs> um, big reason to write, want to engage with them. And so the creativity now that I had based on this system, now I could apply that. And so I added a little creativity of writing them an open letter. And so I digitized that letter. I took, I personalized it by taking a picture of my um, diamond medallion status that I get every month. It was a letter. I get a new card. I took a picture of that. I told them I was at a specific, uh, I was writing this email to them from one of the, the Atlanta uh, club lounges. And I, I sent it to them and I had a, a, a used email as a, just a brief teaser and then a link to medium, the, the blogging platform so that I could click the links. I could see who's opening it if they wanted to read the rest of the open letter. 
And I just opened with the human-centered approach. Again, I was design thinking principles here. I was a human. I'm on your planes all the time. Oh, and by the way, I also just happened to work with a company who can solve a lot of these problems or, or challenges that I experience myself as one of your most frequent flyers. That led, and then in conjunction with that, I mailed them these really premium packages that gave the business cases. And I timed mailing those physically to their offices. This was pre-pandemic. Um, I mailed those to their offices at the same time so they could open that as they were receiving these emails. Three days later, I had them coming to me. I had three VPs. I targeted uh, five VPs, three other VPs, their direct reports reached out to me. And nine months later, we're closing a you know, multi-million dollar, multi-year transformation deal. Dude, <laughs> these are such cool stories. I love that story. Let's talk about, Jamal, you pointed this out in the chat. We're kind of going a little bit of a different direction, if that's cool with you guys. Um, people seem to be really into the getting the meeting part. Um, I don't like to call them gatekeepers, but the executive assistants, the assistants, Jamal, I'll kick this question your way. What part of the process, how involved were EAs and how do you think of EAs in terms of getting the meetings that you want, breaking through, getting the attention? Where do EAs sort of fit into the equation for you? Like right next to whoever it is that they serve. Yeah. They they are they are so money. A, 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 the executives uh, assistants are um, they're 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 huge assets. Number one, they are the choreographers of all of the executives, and they're working with each other like behind the line or, you know, behind the scene of the big production of whatever it is that the executives are doing to make it all happen. So they actually know, what do you want to call it? The political plumbing of the whole organization. And so if, if you can befriend, co-opt, uh, serve the AEs, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it half the battle, but it, it's really far because they can give you information, they can give you insight, they can give you access, they can guide you away from landmines. They're, they're absolutely huge. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, uh, one of the questions was, hey, if you're gonna do this creative outreach with, with, with the pandemic and everything, everybody's working at home, how do you do that? It's hard to get uh, home email or home addresses. And I don't want to look like I'm stalking somebody. It's a, it's a very valid question, but if you can get the guidance and, and co-opt or, or, or become a partner with the EA, the, the, they'll help you work around obstacles to meet your goal, which is to get this object or this message in front of the right person. Ian wanted to ask you, cause you, I know a big part of, you mentioned all of these people, you know, that you're thinking about at these accounts. How do you think about EAs? And if we could get even tactical with how do you get in touch with these people? <laughs> you know, do you find them specifically on LinkedIn and reach out to them directly? Do you call in and, you know, kind of figure out where the department is? Like how to, how to, how do you think about this tact, uh, tactically? I think fundamentally EAs are, are somebody that you get introduced introduced to. You don't get sell. You don't sell through. In other words, you're not trying to sell the EA on why 
your their boss should meet with you. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck. Like, well, they're the gatekeeper. I want to convince them. I spend all this time. But at the end of the day, the executive is going to spend time where they want to spend time. So typically when I work with EAs, it's usually because I've had some type of meeting with an executive and they say, put me in touch with the EAs. And then um, I'm coordinating, you know, with, with the EAs future calendar dates. And, and like Jamal said, it's, it's about being very nice and respectful to them and giving them a compliment. Thanks for your help. Um, chatting with them. I remember the, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, um, I was very close with, and I spent a lot of time with he, he, his EA coordinating a custom agenda for Dreamforce. When I brought him up, it was an executive agenda. We worked together. We picked the topics together, and, and you know, it's 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 kind of their their right hand. But I think it's important not to remember they're not buying, right? So what what it is is they're helping coordinate. They're helping ultimately uh, make things a lot easier for you. And if you have a good relationship, they're going to put you atop of all the requests coming in for meetings and they're going to prioritize your meeting versus other people. So I agree with everything Jamal said. The other thing in these big companies, sometimes people share EAs. So the EA might have two or three executives that they're responsible for. That's awesome because you'll see it right on their email signature, EA to X, Y, and Z. And so now you know kind of that that might be one department, might be some key stakeholders. So it's not about for me prospecting to an EA or finding an EA. It's more when you get that introduction, making sure you're not just like treating them like an assistant or like an admin, like being really nice to them and, you know, getting to know them and, 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 and making them part of the process, but don't try and sell to them. That's the key differentiator for me anyway. Yeah. yeah, I think it's about developing a set of operating principles. You have principles, you know, lead with the human side of a human centric role that we're in, which is treat them with respect. I've seen some successful sellers, right? They delegate or they, they, they think, hey, I'm not treating this EA with respect because they're a barrier versus a bridge, right? To bigger things, right? People remember that. They're humans, right? But if you remember their birthday, you treat everyone with respect, especially EAs, as Ian was mentioning, they're probably going to be managing several executives, right? And, and so that opens doors for you. So be thoughtful. And, and that goes internally as well for everybody that you're rallying here uh, behind you on these really large mega deal pursuits, these diamond accounts, you know, you've got to be respectful of their time. They're they're not here to serve you. They're here to help you. So use principles to sort of think through how should I be approaching? Who am I engaged with? What's the next step here that uh, will, will be a, a help in building a bridge to to what I'm trying to create here? That ultimately helps you to save time, energy, and attention. Got it. So. Let's shift gears a little bit into getting introductions. And Jamal, you said before, you said, I overinvest in warm introductions. So how do you think about these introductions, who you're going to reach out to, who you want to ask for intros with? And you mentioned something I thought was you know, kind of interesting is that you want to be around the people that are in the clouds, I think was what you said because they will have access to the other you know, type of executives. But how do you think about getting warm introductions, asking for them, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think a, a concept that all three of us talk about a lot is leverage, right? If we're one seller and we're trying to do this massive deal, it's, we're not going to be able to brute force it as an individual. We've got to go uh, so, uh, elicit the help of a lot of people internally, 
as well as on the customer side. And that um, a, a theme that not just the three of us, but when I talk with other top sellers all over, it, it's really get to the top as fast as you can. Either you're going to fail fast or you're going to continue and, and, and things are going to move. And depending on the, the size and maturity of the company that you're at, you're going to be able to have a certain relationship with your own executives. And so one thing that I got to be pretty good at was going high, even internally first, um, to be basically get access to our funders or to our uh, board of advisors or our board of directors. And not only would I talk with them once, but I would have cadence calls with them so that they would be a constant source of connections and insight into the companies, either you know where they had worked before and they were in my account, uh, in my patch or, or what have you. And I, I'll go anywhere to try to leverage existing networks, uh, relationships, trust, experience that's already there that I don't have to build from zero. So if I can find somebody who's got a great relationship with the person who I'm trying to get to, and they've known each other for 20 years, and I get an intro from that kind of a person, uh, a word that I love, maybe it's two words, is to be pre-framed, right? I'm pre-framed within the context of somebody who they've known for 20 years, and they're like, oh, well, if if Cindy says he's okay, then I'll, I'll take a meeting with him. And so that lack of of friction, right? That frictionless in is so impactful. That's why I overinvest or what I call overinvesting in in trying to establish these networks and these relationships. It's not fast. I, I don't get meetings the next day that way. But when you want to be in this game as a career, we need to start thinking that um, another thing I like to say is, uh, uh, build a well before you're thirsty. Yeah. So get out there and establish the relationships in these networks in a way that you're already above the clouds and you can just go, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but you know, ah, she knows somebody in that organization or he used to work there or the VC, you know, who's funding us also funds four of my customers. That's a gold mine. So there's, I guess the basic concept is go find the watering holes that already exist, the relationships, the energy, the history, the trust, and get into that flow instead of starting from zero. Love that. I was speaking to an enterprise rep at one of my clients yesterday, and he was just talking about, you know, and I'm curious for you guys too, just using LinkedIn Sales Navigator, it's something I talk about a lot to just see, hey, who at this company maybe used to work at a company that was a that's a current client of ours, you know, who in my existing network knows people at these companies. I know that, again, it sounds kind of obvious to look for, but there's so many opportunities, especially if you work at a decent sized company where someone that used to work at your company might work at someplace now, someone that is a past uh, client, you know, and a past employee of an existing client. I mean, are you guys really spending that time and looking through LinkedIn and mm-hmm. even, you know, the team function in Sales Navigator is really big. Just seeing who in your existing organization has had a conversation with these folks. But go ahead, Ian. One of my one of my clients, his name's uh, Zach Gardner. He's the top AE at Six Sense, and he 
Um, he does this really well. And it, it's so obvious. But again, people tend to show up and do the same thing they've always done. And maybe that'll get you where you are today, but it won't get you where you want to go tomorrow, right? Nothing changes until you do. And so changing strategy to do some of these things that seem obvious, but you're not actually doing is, is probably um, an important step. And what he does is it's really simple. So he sells uh, to sales leaders and, and um, it's like ABM technology. And, and he hit me up multiple times because I had a connection with a senior CRO or SVP of sales. And, and he's one of the only people who did it. And he, and then he sent me two or three follow-up emails. Hey, Hey, touching base. Cause I forgot and got buried in my inbox. And so the strategy is really simple. Look at your first connections and see if they're first connections with the person you're trying to meet with, and then reach out to them. Either if you know them personally, send them a text right? Don't just do it on LinkedIn, but send him a text or whatever and say, how well do you really know this person? Do you know them? And in, in his case, there were probably, he hit me up for like six people. There were three I knew really well. And so I made a text intro to him and he got meetings with senior executives from something so simple as, hey, you know, I'm going to lean on Ian who knows, who knows these folks. One of them I worked with at Rico. And then I worked with him at Salesforce. And now he's a CRO. He was a CRO at Slack or SVP or something. Anyway, that little like step of like reaching out to everyone who is a first connection with who you're trying to target, just ask them, do you really know them? Are they just a connection? If they really know them, most of the time, they'll be happy to make a quick intro. It's so simple and very few people actually do it. So I would start there at the very least is who do you know that knows the person and and kind of go from there. And And it it takes one intro, you know, it's just one person. One person at that account that's a VP or you know senior person to get interest to everyone else it just takes one. Go ahead, Brandon. Yeah, we were talking about the concept of a mobilizer earlier, and you know one of the telltale signs of either a false mobilizer or a wasted dead end is somebody who may have been at that organization for a really long time because they resist change. They're they're ones if you. You're, you're talking to it, trying to target a CIO of an organization who they've been there for 18 years. Hmm. Are you going to really make meaningful change there versus folks are changing? And here's a perfect example. There was one contact during my four year span at Live Person. One contact went from Amex GBT, who was using us. I met him at one of our events, went to United Healthcare. He ended up being my mobilizer there, got the deal done literally in his last week there, then went to a smaller startup. And I passed on that account to, you know, one of my mentees there and Oliver closed it, um, you know, before I, I retired and it was a seven, his first seven figure deal got him into president's club. So we, as a company, we were able to leverage one contact within four years to get three major deals done. So people change roles a lot, especially in today's day and age. Use that. Um, you know, go ask for those referrals. Go find the connections. That's going to be a, a much quicker way in the door uh, and a warmer way in in the door. One of the things that everyone has sort of brought up is there's this you know, there's this sort of compound effect that is created over years spent as a rep at a company, the relationships that you build, 
and keeping track of what people are doing. Did you guys use Sales Navigator or any other kind of tool to really keep close track of like, hey, over the last couple of years, here's everyone that I've talked to so that I have a way to get notified when someone moves a company, someone's going and doing something else, someone gets promoted. Like how how big of a part of your guys' process was that? Go ahead, Ian. I think um, one of the things you can do in Sales Navigator that we did, I, I was fortunate because I had a big team supporting me. So I had a junior sales rep selling deals under 250K and I had a BDR that was doing prospecting. But one of the, the key things is, is you can set up notifications to get alerts where if people are new to an organization, you, you know about it. You can also set up Google alerts if something's happening at the company. And my BDR was great at this. Anytime a new executive came in within um, a year, she set her filters. I don't know if she set her filters or how she did it, but she always says, hey, this person's new to the role, new to the role, new to the role. And then it's a great reason to, to reach out. And that's absolutely something that you can do inside of Navigator. So that was a big part is like anyone one's new. It's like, Hey, I want to check in. I'm part of the Salesforce account team. I know you're new to your role. I want to share how you guys are using Salesforce today, what you're tasked with your top initiatives and, you know, make sure we're aligned to support your, your key metrics. And in almost always these new executives are brought in to make changes. They're brought in because they're something there that's not working or they have a key initiative. So I just try and understand what that is and then help them. And all of a sudden now you have a new department or a new project that you can attach to where they're not using your products today. And it's, it's a great way to find leads within a company to keep it organized. Really, it's it's through account plans. It's through the CRM. It's through understanding relationship mapping. I mean, it's so complex. And that's part of the project management organizational skills you have because you don't want everyone calling in the same people. So we would literally map different people within the company to different executives. And I'd have my marketing cloud account executive managing the CMO relationship and some other IT with my platform. And so you really need to know who owns what within the account when you're dealing with a, a large kind of matrix organization for people who work at an Oracle or, or Salesforce in that director type of type of role. So love it. I want to do something kind of fun here for the last couple of minutes. Just kind of a round robin thing. We'll start with you, Jamal, just sort of rapid fire. Um, what do you feel like is the biggest mistake that people make when they send an email to someone that they're trying to get a meeting with that they don't know? Prospect doesn't know them, hasn't heard of them. What do you think is the biggest, what's your hot take on the biggest mistake that reps are making when they're sending emails, trying to get meetings? They're at, they're asking for something right off the bat. In, instead, you know, um, and, and the context here is, is with senior people. Uh, se- senior people, you, you've got to establish a relationship and they, they don't even make it through rapport. Th- through one email, they're like, you know, there's some personalization, but it's very light. And it can be researched in 10 minutes. And then they throw out, hey, we do this. Can I get some time? I, and I saw those all the time when I was, you know, just, just last year when I was in my, my, my last role because I had a VP title. And it would just happen over and over and over. Whereas um, the, the right way to do it is probably starting on LinkedIn and starting a dialogue that has nothing to do with your product. Might have a conversation about the value that you might bring, but it's not about your company and it's not about, uh, your product. It's all about them, what they're, you know, something they wrote, something that's going to start a conversation. So you, you've got to get over that hump of rapport before you could ever start doing stuff. So I think the biggest, I think the, the biggest mistake that's top of mind for me is asking for something in the first email. Interesting. Brandon, what about you? Uh, not asking yourself 
would I respond to this? Um, whether it is a LinkedIn email, whether it's an email, whether it's a voicemail, whether it's a video message, um, just try to put yourself in the shoes of that executive. Try to level yourself up as a business operator and think like them. What are the challenges they're facing? You know, what is their day like? How many people are asking for their time, energy, and attention? And just think, okay, if I was in that situation, how would I respond to this? Not only respond to it, but actually compliment this person for the way they approached it. If you, again, take yourself out of your shoes and think like a designer, I'm all about personas today and the different personas that you should embody at different stages, but think like a designer, think like a good content creator um, would, or the executive that you're, you're trying to reach out to. Try to embody a little bit of what it's like to be in their shoes. And before you send something, just ask, would I respond to this? That's going to be a good key filter for, you know, making sure that you're not sending anything that's too self-motivated, self-interest. Hmm. Well, you have something in your book I thought was brilliant. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It was something along the lines of you and your SDR would sit down and ask yourselves, is this something that would impress Elon Musk? Yeah. So that, you know, we, we used right or wrong, whether you love him or hate him, Elon Musk, you know, wealthiest person on, on the planet. Um, yeah. I would sit down with the BDR, you know, explain this in seven steps to seven figures. And we would try to elevate our experience. I call it the diamond experience going after these diamond accounts. What yep. would it take to get Elon Musk to, uh, appreciate and compliment us on on that tweet. Yeah. You know, probably more apropos to him. Yeah, I love that. Love that. Ian, what's your hot take? And then uh, we're about out of time. Hyper personalization works. Don't be generic. Both, you know, Jamal and Brandon are saying what what I what I also agree with, which is make it about them, not you. Don't pitch in, in the first in the first email, like really like show them you care by being thoughtful. Hey, I listened to your podcast. You said X, Y, and Z. Here's how I think fundamentally we could help you with these core things, right? If it's all about them and you show them through your email that you took the time to really research and come out with a point of view that's hyper-personalized and specific to them, typically they're going to respond or at worst, they're going to connect you with other people. But I've seen this approach work for CEOs of companies. I've seen it work with the C-suite. You can't treat them the same as you treat everyone else. Don't use generic language. Don't take a batch and blast. And the last thing is don't make it too long. You don't want to write an essay, right? It's an email. They're not going to read the whole thing. So make it short, sweet, cut to the chase and put a good message line, like your podcast interview, something about them that they'll actually open and read. So those are my, my quick tips. Love it. And we're right up on time. Uh, dude, you guys, another blast. We took this in a little bit of a different direction. I thought that was kind of fun and focused on the creativity and um, everyone else that's here appreciate you so much. The engagement was really awesome. We got one last session next Thursday. Make sure to tune in for this one. These Each of these three guys is going to reverse engineer a really big deal that they closed. Um, so we're going to have a lot of fun with that. But uh, we're out of time. Thanks, guys. Have a good Thanks, rest of your week. We'll see you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. See ya. Later.